Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 312, recorded November 29th, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. This episode is brought to you by the Compiler Podcast from Red Hat. Check them out. Really appreciate them supporting the show. Brian, we got a lot to cover today. You want to just jump right into it? What I want to talk about is Simon Willison. Uh, this is... This is incredible. So Simon uh, did a, a talk at DjangoCon 2022, and then he wrote up the wrote up with the slides and everything. And we're going to link to his uh, blog. His blog title is "Coping Strategies for the Serial Project Hoarder," and then the the talk title was "Massively Increase Your Productivity on Personal Projects with Comprehensive Documentation and Automated Tests." Yes, that's a mouthful. But really, I don't know what a good name for this is other than everybody that works with development needs to watch this talk because it's incredible. Um, so he, he goes through uh, a lot of stuff. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to, luckily he's got screenshots on here, but um, he starts out. So this is, this is important, not just for open source projects or personal projects. This is also for, if you're working uh, in a company, I think this is equally true. So he, talks about how he got this these techniques from working at now i'm gonna forget where he worked but <laughs> at, um yeah it's gone uh, a large company with multiple continents uh and uh it, it was helpful to, to to do this model so what is he talking about so one of the things he talks about is um the perfect commit so we don't we don't really as a professional software developer you're not really doing new code all the time what you're doing is maintaining existing software. So uh, so the commit is your unit of work. And a perfect commit is, is includes the implementation of whatever you've done, but it also has tests and documentation and a link to the issue thread. And this is, it seems like a lot to me, but walking through his talk, it totally makes sense. Uh, so he gives an example of of one of his with with some some cool highlights that highlights that he's got documentation changes also and the document change documentation might just be a single line change or something um but the uh the tests he does pause here and say tests are hard for some people for some developers so um it's important to get get a working test framework in place quickly so that a test developer isn't starting from scratch they're just or a software developer when they're writing tests. It's just, um, it's not like comprehensive testing has to be there, but it is a test that passes uh, when, you're, when your change is there and fails when it's not there or fails when it's not working. That's enough. Um, you can do more thoroughly test, thorough testing, but that's enough to, to get us started. And I think that's a good way to think about it. But he goes, uh, talks about, has he throws in this little cool thing of like, just keep common types of projects that you're, you have around as cookie cutters in your own, in your own GitHub area. Um, he's got a Python library and a click app and data set plugin for him. I might have different things like a PyTest plugin or something. And that way you can just keep up with your best practices, what you think of as best practices in one place. This is a cool idea. Um, totally going to steal this. Uh, and I've then, done that but, for myself as well. I've, I've built like a, a this predated cookie cutter, but I built this thing like I always want to have logging and I want it like this. I always want to, you know, uh, connect to this other service and like ping and to make sure that the thing is a lie or whatever, right? whatever thing we decided for monitoring inside of our, our the company I worked at. And like all the new projects would just start that way. 
And it was so nice because you didn't like, ah, is it really worth doing the thing to make sure that we can monitor this at the time? Like you just run the one command line thing and it's it's there, yeah. right? It, we could give it to our, an intern and they could run it to start their project. It was great. And then he's got like this thing that supposedly with a GitHub hook, and I'm going to have to dig into this more because I didn't quite understand how this works, but he's got a way within the GitHub interface to say, I want a new project. And it automatically like gives you the choices of what kind of project and then fills out all the defaults from the start instead of just getting the readme like normally. So this is kind of neat. And I, I guess I want to try figuring this out. Um, the documentation bit, um, at least uh, one of the things about including this, even if it's difficult, you can have this be part of the code review requirements. So don't don't accept a code review uh, until the documentation is there also. Um, so this is a cool idea. Um, and then uh, it's the bonus trick of testing documentation, which is a cool idea. Um, and then the links to the issue. And I thought this was just sort of a, yes, you should do this. But this is really the meat of the talk is him doing his entire thought process in the issue thread. And he even gives examples where there's sometimes like up to 50, 60 uh, comments. And it's just him talking to himself. But this is brilliant. And I, I'm not going to convince you as much as, as he is, but includes screenshots and, and dead ends. Like I tried this thing and it didn't work. And we're going to go back and do this other thing. Um, this is an uh, he calls it temporal documentation. And I just love this idea. And I'm going to try to follow this myself because I have like a memory issue. I write stuff down and I, then I forget where I wrote it down. Um, and this is where this way he says, you don't have to remember anything. You just dump it there. And that way, let's say you, you get uh, pulled off of a project and, uh, and you don't get back to it for like six months because you've been fighting fires and do other, other stuff. And then you get back to it, you won't remember where you're at. And with this 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 line of thinking of keeping all of your thinking in the issue thread, you can just jump in and go, oh, that's where I was and get started pretty quickly. I love this. It's cool. So um, there, then the rest of the talk is pretty interesting, too, talking about how, like, you know, scientists have been doing this and other engineers have been doing this for a long time. They called them lab notebooks before. And we kind of got out of the habit of doing that with software. But anyway, lots of great techniques. And I think this is just how to be a professional software developer now. I love that it's a, like a casual conversation and not like here are my four recommendations, but like the playing around and the dead ends are really, really valuable. Uh, yeah. Came out in the audience says uh, the cookie cutter approach also works beautifully from a DevOps perspective for setting up developers to use your firm specific infrastructure. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's a little bit of what I was hinting at of like, here's how we integrate with this like uptime manager and stuff. But obviously DevOps, that was talking, we were deploying to a, a server in a closet then, <laughs> which I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of stuff you might need to know, Brian. Um, Google Copilot and these code writing AIs, I have more to say that about that at the very end of the show, booking this a little bit. Uh, they train themselves on lots of code. And Google Copilot, for those of you who don't know, you basically can give it a comment and it like, I want to connect to a Postgres database with SQL Alchemy. And then boom, it'll like literally write all the code, import the usings, you know, come up with a connection string, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty fantastic. It has some privacy issues. Uh, I don't know what it's doing now. It used to send your source code that you wrote up to GitHub, which made me not want to use it already. But the big news here is uh, get uh, the website GitHubCopilotLitigation.com. And that's as ominous as it, it sounds. 
says, we filed, this is what the website uh, sort of uh, announces always, is we filed a lawsuit challenging GitHub Copilot, an AI product that relies on unprecedented open source software piracy. Hmm. Why piracy? Because it's trained on things that are like GPL and Creative Commons share alike or attribution. And then it outputs code based on that original input that has no GPL and it has no, you know, whatever license, right? The license is stripped and no attribution. What do you think? It's something we talked about from the very beginning of like, how how is this okay? Um, yeah. Not sure. Absolutely. If, if it did things like we're only going to look at MIT licenses and other commercial open no attribution licenses, I don't think there'd be anything anything to say about it. But apparently that's not the case. So there's a, a couple of updates as well. I suppose uh, we should also, like they do on this page, say we are not a lawyer. Please don't take legal advice from us. We write code, not uh, legal hmm. documents. But nonetheless, it says uh, this, this is Matthew Butterick. And they've set up to, uh, to investigate Google Copilot. And they filed a class action lawsuit in the U.S. federal court in San Francisco on behalf of a couple of folks. So they're challenging the legality of GitHub Copilot and a related pro product, OpenAI Codex, which powers Copilot. The suit has been filed against a set of defendants that includes GitHub, Microsoft, and OpenAI. Wow. Hmm. There's an update down here somewhere. Um, let's see. It says, by training, here's the motivation for their um, lawsuit. By training an a their AI systems on public GitHub repositories, though based on their public statements, uh, possibly much more, we contend that the defendants have violated the legal rights of a vast number of creators who posted code or other work under certain open source licenses on GitHub, which licenses a set of 11 popular open source licenses that all require attribution, the author's name and copyright, including, I guess, the MIT license as well, the GPL and the Apache license. And it's listed out there. There's a whole bunch more details. And it says, update November 10th. That original was November 3rd. There's an update uh, here. This is, we filed a second class action lawsuit on behalf of two additional plaintiffs. The defendants and claimants are otherwise similar to the initial one. So um, hmm. there you go. It's going to be interesting. It's not going to be just interesting for Google, uh, for Google GitHub Copilot, but basically AI in general, right? It says it's it's going to challenge that AI strips the ownership and, and other requirements of inputs and outputs, right? And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I mean, we heard that APIs are not copyrightable in the Google um, Oracle Java lawsuit. So we're going to find out here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, in it, when I, when we looked into this a little bit earlier, if it if it's helping you fill in parameters to a function or what what likely things you're going to fill in for a function call, that's one thing. But when it plops down like 20 lines of code for you, where did it get those 20 lines of code? Yeah. And and then I mean, open source doesn't necessarily mean you can copy it. You it's just open to read. I mean, the, you can have a you can put your own license in there. You can make up your own license that says. Anybody can read this, but you can't copy it, use it, or do anything else with it at all. Can't even fork it. Um, um, and there's nothing stopping you from doing that sort of a license. In, uh, right. Or so. uh, the default, if you put it on GitHub, I believe if you put no license, means you have no, li you're conferring yeah. no license whatsoever, right? Yeah. It means it's just like, uh, it's like, like writing a book. You can't, when you write a book, you have the full copyright um, unless you give it to somebody else. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, let's stick with my screen for a second. I want to tell you all about our sponsor for this week, Compiler. 
So this episode of Python Bytes, this episode of Python Bytes is sponsored by the Compiler Podcast from Red Hat. Like you, Brian and I are fans of podcasts. I listen to them more and more these days, actually. And I'm happy to share this one, Compiler and Original Podcast from Red Hat. So if you want to stay on top of tech without dedicating tons of time to it, check out Compiler. They present um, perspectives and topics and insights from the tech industry free of jargon and judgment. They want to discover where technology is headed beyond headlines and create a place for new IT professionals to learn, grow, and thrive. Compiler helps people break through barriers and challenges, turning code into community at all levels of the enterprise. One recent interesting episode is their great stack debate. I love, love, love talking to people about their architecture, their code, all the trade-offs and conventions. As you'll see later in the show, I'm going to talk a bit about that at the end as well for us. And the costs that come with this, the challenges, things that are awesome, the things that are not. So this episode is like that. So you can check it out to see if software is like an onion or like lasagna or it's more complicated. It's the first episode in a compiler series on the software stack. So listen to more about compiler at pythonbytes.us. You can just go type compiler into your podcast player. And that's what I would do in general. But please use our link so that the folks at Red Hat know that it came from us. Yes. Yes. And thanks to compiler for keeping our podcast going strong. All right. Over to you, Brian. What's the next one? Um, I so I, it's this is a silly thing, but sometimes uh, I've got code that I want to Python code that I want to have a pop up, uh, you know, a window pop up, and um, I've always been using uh, what is it, uh, Py Simple GUI? I, well, not always, but that's what I've been using lately for for like really easy, just a simple pop up thing, especially if I needed to use run on Macs and really anywhere, um, because it's like totally fast to get it done and I don't have to think about it anymore. However, PySimpleGUI doesn't, I don't, I haven't mastered the art of getting it to look just like a native dialog box. It's, um, and maybe there's some tricks that you can do that I just don't know. But if I'm on Win, if I know it's on Windows, maybe we could just go ahead and use the Windows DLLs and and do the, uh, a native right, Windows just, just call box. straight into the Windows Win32 API for yeah, it's sure. Like that could be whatever that shouldn't is. be yeah. too hard, right? Um, no. It sounds scary to me, but I, we I ran across uh, uh, Matt Callahan's blog. <clears throat> Matt Callahan has an article called "Display a Message Box Box in Python Without Using uh, a Non-Standard Library or Other Dependency." Actually, you can just do this. You don't have to in install anything. Um, and I got this. I wanted. Uh, where did I get this from? Give credit where credit is due. I got this from the PyQuarters Weekly newsletter, so thanks, thanks to them. Um, anyway, this is not hard. So he has a, a little pop-up example, and uh, I should have read the article, but I just skimmed for the code. Um, here, here's some code. That's it. This pop makes a dialog box pops pop up, and it's calling the. Uh, so it calls. Um, it's just like a couple flags. It's like ten lines of code. Uh, it calls C types, WinDLL, user32, message box, EXW, whatever that means. And <laughs> with some with some stuff in it, like a title and a message and everything. Um, so it's using C types, which um, I don't use much, but it, you know you can to get into DLLs. So C types is built into Python. And um, so this message box, I wanted to play with it a little bit more. So as I was playing with this, um, looked into the uh, uh, Microsoft documentation. Um, the message box dialog, there's a, one of the flags is this U type and it's like this hex value thing or a bit field and you can orient a whole bunch of stuff. So you can use this to, to get like an okay box or an okay cancel box, uh, you get different types, 
of dialog boxes using this this flag. And then once you've got this popped up, how do you ha- you need to know like what users clicked on and stuff. So there's there's return values from this, and you can just like check the return value, and it's defined to be like you know uh, a three for abort and a two for cancel and one for okay, and you can just check this value. So with just a little bit of code, you can have a native dialog box pop up if you need to in your code. So Yeah, that's awesome. And it does things like natively that you would expect. Like, for example, you hit escape and you have an okay cancel, it'll return cancel. I hate some of these these like UI things. They show up and you're like, well, it's got one text input and a submit button. You hit enter, it does nothing. You're like, yeah, great. Okay. Uh, Apparently, this is not real. I'm going to have to just, you know, go click it or whatever, right? And so hooking into the native OS is sweet like that. This looks like a thing that would be ripe for a, a short, simple little package that wraps up, say, all the... Okay, cancel. Yeah, okay, cancel. What kind of icon you want? Do you want like a warning? Do you want an informational icon? Um, The buttons. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it seems really great. But um, this is fantastic. So, so neat and um, and built in. Neat. So, anyway, just a quickie. Yeah, it comes included. And uh, yeah, I really like it. And it's also a bit of a roadmap to show what you could do beyond that, right? There's more than just really simple dialog boxes. For example, like the open file dialog box on Windows could Uh probably be real similar, right? Oh yeah, probably. Um, right. Yeah, so when I was looking it up, there's a whole bunch of dialog boxes you got access to. So yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a roadmap to like, well, I can like create a file or you know any of these things, which I think is, is pretty cool. All yeah. right, uh, let's flip away from OS specific to OS general, but stick with PyCoders for a minute. So this one also comes from PyCoders. Uh, I don't know if it's the same um, issue or not, but very cool. It says write Chrome extensions, which also mean like Brave and Vivaldi and others. Edge, maybe. Write Chrome extensions in Python. Oh, <laughs> how does it work? PyScript, of course. So, um, yeah, we we just take PyScript. And this, this is an article by Pete Fiston. And it sort of walks through how he was able to use PyScript, which is Python on WebAssembly running in the browser, to use that to power a Chrome extension. And it doesn't really matter if it's a bit of a nine meg download because you install it once and it's local on your computer, right? So it just, if you want to do this, it walks you through all the things you got to do in order to use PyScript to write Hmm. Chrome extensions or Python to write Chrome extensions. What do you think? Cool. Even shows you how to put an icon. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But I have more for you. So just so in case people don't know, this is an extra, extra, extra hear all about it section because I'm going to hit a whole bunch of things. So as of recently just published this episode let me look 30 uh 31 minutes ago and it says pyscript powered by micropython so one of the challenges that pyscript has had traditionally is it's based on the full nearly the full c python runtime compiled into WebAssembly, which after you strip a bunch out uh, that doesn't work in the browser it comes down to like nine megabytes hmm. okay it's for like this browser extension thing that's reasonable but for uh, you would never use it in place of like Vue.js on a popular page because you want that page to load quickly. You want it to be good for SEO, all those things. But you know what's small and fast? MicroPython. Oh, neat. So I just had Brett Cannon, Nicholas Tolerve, and Fabio Flieger uh, on Talk Python to talk about the work that they're doing to make PyScript not run on full C Python, but to run on MicroPython. Oh, wow. MicroPython you can get that to load up in 100 milliseconds on your page, and it's only a couple hundred K. All of a sudden, that starts to sound a lot like a pretty rich front-end framework level of 
stuff you got to download and get started. And you cache it, then you're you're good to go. That's exciting, huh? That's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So this Chrome extension thing is cool. When you look at the shipping version, I don't know if you can t- call it shipping because price script is still like super alpha. But what you can get today. Uh, so Nicholas said probably spring that they'll have something to share, but uh, in terms of being able to use MicroPython, but I think that's pretty excellent. That could really, really unlock some some super cool features if now we could build like a Vue.js type thing, but with Python. And one of the goals that they stated is that they're looking to build this as a framework, or excuse me, a platform that you can build frameworks on top of. So it's not just, here's how you write some Python code in the browser, but here's a foundation that people could create like a PyView or a PyAngular or, you know, whatever they wanted to create, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. Question, question just for my own personal use. Uh, is is Would Chrome extensions work on Vivaldi? Yeah, yeah, they do. Okay. One of the things that's interesting about Vivaldi, and I think it probably affects its reporting a little bit, when you look at the user agent, of Vivaldi, it's exactly the user agent of Chrome. So it lies to the world and tells the world it's Chrome. <laughs> There's no user agent for Vivaldi. It's just whatever version of Chrome it's it's like using, you know? Okay. So when you go to the Chrome web store, it's like, put this in Chrome, you click it and yeah, it goes. So it worked perfectly, sure. Cool. Yes. And uh, John Sheehan says, yes, they do. All right, next, extra, extra, extra. Uh, Brian, I've been excited a little bit about Mastodon. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> yeah, me too. I know it's fantastic. It's really tons of great interactions. And I started putting in our show notes, which you'll see when I publish this, um, your Mastodon account and mine so people can connect with us and, and sh- uh, have even more conversations over there. But there was a really interesting article by Eugene, the, the guy who created Mastodon. Called some, I've been looking and looking. It's about scaling Mastodon and uh, the challenges they were having. And boy, it's I, I would love to link to it, but I just can't find it. But it's so it's written in ruby right and so it talks so much about these are the challenges of scaling out threads and oh we have this thing called a gill and it really doesn't allow you to use threads very easily and and here's there's just it was so interesting to look at at how a technology that doesn't have async io and async and await getting all tangled up trying to do io based things so it's like well can we have, maybe we should have 10 to 20 threads to do the network communication. But if we have more than 20, then we get like a context switching and contention in the operating system, hmm. you know, that just comes with having OS threads. Well, guess what? You can do really well with no threads or one thread. You can talk to web, you can call other websites, you can receive web requests. And the mechanism for doing that in Python is async and await. And async IO requires no additional threads very, very little overhead, no contact switching. So uh, this project um, by Andrew, I'm sorry if I am not getting, uh, Andrew Godwin, sorry, forgot his last name for a moment, of um, Django Channel said, what if I rewrote this, but in Python with an async and await, okay? Okay. So there's a bunch of challenges of running Mastodon. People want to have their own server because they're like, oh, I want my own server, so I'm not stuck in one of these communities and beholden to them. The problem is every one of those is like a standalone DevOps adventure. There's tons of like things working together and it's it's a lot of work, right? It'd be better if you put uh, like host more of them on one machine and and sort of scale, scale that up uh, in, in a nice way. So this one lets you host multiple domains for small to medium instances, and it's written with 
async and await, which is pretty awesome. So yeah. Anyway, it's, I, I, think I don't know. If, check this out. <clears throat> I didn't know if you if I caught you trying to pronounce it. Takahe. Takahe. I don't know. I, I don't uh, know. I'm gonna go with Takahe. I'm gonna go with that. But and yeah. of course, Andrew Godwin just said. Um, you know, I could probably write this in Python and like get it out in a couple of weeks. I think it was like five days or something. That you got the first <laughs> so key features, multiple domain support, multiple identities per user, which is kind of interesting. Um, desktop, mobile, and PWA compatible. <laughs> Again, how many days? And easy deployment, a web worker, a background worker, and one database. Not all this crazy, crazy stuff. So anyway, people can check it out. Let's check out the requirements, see what we got going on here. UVicorn for an HTTPX. I mean, that pretty much pretty much says it right there. Oh, interesting. It's based on H Django HTMX. Uh, is is pretty interesting as some hmm. of the building blocks. But yeah, super cool. Um, so there's another one. All right. I I we just had our Black Friday sale over at Talk Python. Cool. And that was really excellent. Sold a bunch of courses. Uh, we sold some uh, PyTest courses, by the way. Yeah. But I, I'm just excited because sometimes we have these sort of conversations about you've like cool sales and stuff. And I'm glad that I get to be a part of that now. We've done other fun things where like we couldn't sell your book through them because uh, it's through the publisher. And I guess, yeah, it gets tricky, right? So I'm really excited as well. So we did our Black Friday uh, sale. And I guess what? I noticed something a little bit unusual. It said I, after a little bit, I opened up glances on the main web server and it said, CPU usage is 85%. I'm like, oh, that's not so good. 88, 91, 92, uh-oh. <laughs> but what was super interesting was Nginx, not Python, was the thing getting hammered. So mm. both Nginx workers were like almost 100%, and Python was just chilling. I'm like, okay, that is a really interesting story for Python performance, that something amazing like yeah. Nginx that people say is fast all the time is the bottleneck. And it turned out it survived, but just barely, right? If it were like twice as bad, it would have it would have keeled over, which had been bad. So I talked to a bunch of people about this, and I realized that there's one HTTP response. I got to spell that better. Um, and twelve CSS files, forty three images, and one JavaScript file on the page I was sending them. So I'm like, all right, maybe I I should try to use some interesting CDN, which I had got a recommendation from one of our listeners, but otherwise hadn't heard about. What a cool service! So. Now we have 112 different locations serving up those static files nice. and just processing. So I, I went back today when we did our Cyber Monday and I said, when I, that was yesterday, when I pushed out the, the announcement for Cyber Monday closing and I pulled up the uh, re real-time data, look at that traffic. That's CSS and JavaScript and images. 1.4 gigabytes a second. Oh my gosh. That's insane, dude. And check this out on the server. This is the most important part. 3% CPU usage on Nginx and across the whole computer, across all of all of the microwiski processes, just a couple mm. more percent. Uh, more CDN percent. to the rescue. Exactly. But the, the thing that's also interesting is that Python is just like, yeah, it was nothing. Like we can take that, but it's all those static files. So anyway, I put that right up together for people um, in order to serve out that, that data, um, pay $2, right? For uh, 0.35 terabytes. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it's going right now. Oh, it's got a refresh here. They have these cool real-time maps and whatnot, but that little spike right there is when I released the Talk Python episode. Um, and that's about four and a half terabytes per second, which is just insane. So anyway, I totally recommend people check this out. It's, it's super fun. You're reaching and, people all over the world. That's pretty cool. Yeah, isn't that amazing? You get all these different locations. I think it lost its, its um, 
web um, web socket Ooh. connection because it stopped updating. It's like there's a little warning. This live uh, monitor is like a little bit of a, a suggestion of how things might be. But hmm. yeah, anyway. Yeah, what's up with the okay. Alaska people not listening? Hey, Alaska. Yeah, man. Come on. Yeah, they're <laughs> going to have to uh, CDN over to, to Canada or anyway. So uh, not that. This final one here. No, not final one. Second final one of the, the read all about it or hear all about it. Uh, Reader 5. I've actually been really getting back into RSS. And I do still I've do never RSS, left. Brian. You have yeah. what, What's your RSS story these days? Like, No, I use uh, Feedly on my phone just to keep up on, on stuff. Um, nice. Uh, I'd switch to things like um, Zite, which is sadly gone, and Flipboard, and these sort of you know, like Apple News-like things where they kind of curate a bunch of different sources. I'm like, you know what? There's a bunch of great places I would really like to just directly get them from and curate a little more than just I suggest more Python. Because do you know how many times my Python channel in, in like Flipboard has woman scared of Python that comes out of toilet? <laughs> like, you know, no, not that Python. Really not. <laughs> no, no, no. And so I've just been super loving. Uh, I've been using uh, Reader 5 with two E's. And what a nice piece of software this thing is for, for 10 bucks. Um, okay. Really, really cool. Yeah. So I'll check it out. Yeah. And another thing I would like if people have awesome recommendations for blogs, especially Python blogs that I should be following or people, listeners should be following, put that on the YouTube channel comments or send it to us on Macedon or Twitter. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll give a shout out to the ones that are extra good, but very, very cool. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Check this out. There's a podcast called Sing for Science. And on season three, episode eight, which just came out six days ago, Rivers Cuomo of Weezer and Guido Van Rossum sit down for a conversation. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. That's that's really cool. So have you listened to it? Yeah, I listened to it. I, okay. I grabbed some uh grabbed my phone and my dog and went for a walk and listened to it because the sun came out and that was rare right now. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um neat. I it's a lot of the host talking to Rivers and talking to Guido and a little bit of interaction. I would love a little more facilitation of talk, them two talking directly, but both great people. Um, Rivers Rivers is awesome. He does really cool stuff with Python. I had him on uh, Talk Python 327, little automation tools, which was fun. So yeah, he's a he's a legit developer these days, which is, is pretty neat. All right, final thing, Brian. Final extra, extra, extra. We started with, I started at least my segment with AI coding, and I'm going to end it with AI coding Kite. Do you remember Kite? It was like the original GitHub Copilot. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, they are shutting down. So they've been around for 10 years or so. Not quite. Seven years, something like that. Really? Quite a while, but uh, they're shutting down. So uh, thanks for all the uh, code, I suppose. And that's it. That's all I got for all my extras. Um, I want to add one. So uh, we talked, um, Simon Willison, talked to one of one thing i didn't mention about in his talk is he encouraged people to write blogs because there's not that that blogs were huge for a while and then everybody was doing it and now not so much and so um uh, you do get noticed more if, if you're writing a blog i think that that's a good thing plus you can link we can link to it easier if you if you got your article on a blog absolutely <laughs> but um uh, also and rss wise uh planet python is something i still check out so planetpython.org, if you haven't heard of it, um, it has, uh, you can either have the full content so you can read, um, and it pulls all of this through RSS from, from different blogs. And so if you have, um, and titles only, if you have a, um, 
uh, a Python blog or you're starting one, check out Python uh, Planet, python.org and try to get your name on the list. Uh, maybe put out like three or four articles first and then uh, and then try to get your name on the list or your blog on the list. And that way it gets seen by people like us, um, even if you don't notify us. So Yeah, that's, that's excellent. I didn't subscribe to that because I feel like it's a little bit too much of everything. But I went through all the recent posts and said, this writer looks interesting or this source looks interesting and like subscribe directly. So I kind of used it to to start my exploration of, of those things I wanted to subscribe to. Yeah, not a bad idea. And you know yeah. they have RSS feeds because they're, they're in here. So Exactly. I, I, since you brought it up, I just want to also point out like one of my roadblocks of writing a lot was, well... I don't have time to write like an article, something well thought out and, you know, a thousand words and and that, you know what, my, my new philosophy has been, let's just write like really short posts. Like here's one about a fun thing I did with spammers. And it's like three paragraphs, or uh, here's one about installing something as a PWA. It's two pictures and four paragraphs. And you don't, you don't have to write essay, like long essays to contribute interesting things and ideas, I think. So just following up on that. Yeah, my, my thoughts are, if it's going to be a thread, make it a post instead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, my jokes have vanished. I had a cool joke on social media and it got taken down. It was, it was, um, it was very funny. It was totally benign. I don't know why it's gone, but whatever. <laughs> and then, uh, by the way, following up on this, Jeremy Page says, you can also RSS Mastodon users. Okay, that's and, that's, uh, and Mastodon um, uh, hashtags as well. You can RSS those. Okay, yeah, I follow the Python hashtag over there. I could RSS it, I suppose. Excellent. <laughs> All right, Brian, so do you have a joke for us? Yeah, so speaking of Mastodon, on Mastodon, I, I said, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of great Python content on Mastodon, but I need some joke people to like, I need some nerd jokes. Uh, so I'm asking for people. Um, and this, somebody didn't ask, tell me a person to follow. I'm still looking for people to follow with good jokes. So if you uh, send them my way, if, uh, um, or send me their way, if, if you know of people, uh, but here's one that I got from somebody on Mastodon. So I got it from, who did I get this from? I should probably give credit. Uh, so this came from Steven box. Nice. Thanks, Steven. So uh, exit condition from monkeyuser.com. So um, it took me a while to get this. Um, so uh, there's a couple of people um, uh, sitting at a desk, uh, pair programming, I'm guessing, and then somebody else that's frustrated. Uh, they hear, wait. And he says, the frustrated guy says, that's it. And, and, and he starts going towards a door that's labeled recursion. And uh, somebody says, wait, there's no, I'm going in. Uh, he goes in and he gets into the other side and says, wait, he's the person trying to say, wait, um, oh because my gosh. There's, there's no exit condition. <laughs> so that's a dumb joke, it's, but that's it, right. it's really good. And it's got some clever, um, the, the cartoon is clever <laughs> where like the, the speech of the other one is off screen. So it kind of looks like it comes from the original group, but in fact is coming from the recursion of the first one. And yeah, it's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, one more. Um, somebody said uh, you, I should follow uh, Olafur Weich. Uh, anyways, um, I just thought this was dumb and funny. Uh, Bobby Pin? No, I go by my full name, Robert Pindle. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminded me of the Bobby Tables thing. So yes, exactly. I love it. All anyway. right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And Brian, thanks for being uh, here. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye.